Hey there, everybody. This is John from Modders Talking Politics here at the mid-break to talk about BizTalks. BizTalks is one of our partners. They're a great company, and they're a company with the goal of making you a better businessman today. Just this week, they held one of their BizTalks conventions where they had many different types of businessmen and businesswomen come on stage and discuss what they do in their fields of work in the private market and how you can be a better businessman. You can watch these talks on BizTalks website, biztalks.co, which is linked in the description and found on the about page of our website, otterstalkingpolitics.com. If you're a business-oriented person and want to learn more about how you can become a better businessman today, be sure to check out biztalks.co right now. Thank you guys again for listening, and let's get back to the show. Hey there, everybody. John here with Otters Talking Politics here with another Saturday podcast. This week, we have a special guest. His name is Brian Nichols of The Brian Nichols Show, and uh, he's on here to talk to us a little bit about libertarianism and liberty and just the whole entire libertarian movement in America. So, Brian, thank you for coming on. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for uh, for having me on, John. I know we've been, we've been going back and forth here a little bit trying to get this officially set up, so I'm looking forward to to having this conversation and hopefully uh, reaching out to your audience with some new information and a different way of thinking about things. Yeah, yeah, me too. I'm uh, really excited to actually have you on. I've uh, been a fan of yours since I found you, I don't know, probably three or four months ago. And uh, so I listen to your podcast regularly when I when I have the time to. Awesome. I appreciate that. Yeah, yeah, no problem. Um, so I guess we should start by kind of introducing who you are and uh, your kind of background, for lack of yeah. a better word. For sure. Um, so, I mean, I guess I'll start off uh, who I am. So as John mentioned, I'm Brian Nichols from The Brian Nichols Show. Uh, so The Brian Nichols Show, it's a part of the uh, We Are Libertarians network. Uh, so essentially the the premise of my entire show is twofold. So number one, it's to discuss the fundamental issues that we're facing today, be it climate change, gun rights, abortions, the fundamental role of government, et cetera, et cetera. But trying to have these conversations with people from across the political spectrum, because I think the only way we're able to have an open and honest dialogue is to really have these meaningful conversations and to really find where it is that we fundamentally disagree and then try to find ways to overcome those disagreements and find areas where we maybe have some commonalities and to focus more so on those commonalities versus you know, focusing on the things that we disagree with. So there's a, there's a good quote um, from Ronald Reagan back and towards the end of his presidency. And he said, you know, the, uh, the person who's my 80% ally isn't my 20% enemy. And I think if we can have those kind of conversations and those kind of um, just the way that we approach our political discourse, I think it's gonna be much more productive. So uh, with my show, uh, I, I do cover the news, um, usually in a, a brief kind of uh, succinct way before we dig into the bigger issues to discuss the the meat and potatoes, if you will, of the issues at hand. And I always like to say, you know, my goals are are threefold. Number one, educate. Number two, enlighten. And number three, inform. So that's my show. Uh, but as for me, uh, so a little bit about my background. Uh, I have a bachelor's in political science with a concentration in American government, as well as uh, constitutional law, but also an associates in business administration with a concentration in uh, marketing and management. I've worked on uh, several political campaigns, ranging from small local elections 
to, to federal elections uh, in, in congressional races. So with that being said, currently I'm the associate editor over at Austin Peterson's Libertarian Republic and currently the vice chair for the America's Future Foundation here in Philadelphia. I'm a huge Dallas Cowboys fan. <laughs> I love the, the TV show, The Office, um, which I just actually just binge watched and finished for the, I think, the 25th time through the series because I'm absolute nut of the show. So yeah, that's a little bit about me, and that's uh, where my my background and and uh, the the show overall is where we kind of come from in our uh, our lens over here. Yeah, well, I'll definitely forgive you for being a Dallas fan. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I get that know. a lot being in Philadelphia. Trust me. <laughs> yeah, you know everybody can't be right all the time, so <laughs> that's definitely what, what's the expression? I agree with your right to be wrong. Yeah, yeah, exactly, <laughs> and that's. I mean, that's really just a, a core uh, attribute of uh, libertarianism. So I got to ask, what's your team then? Oh, I'm actually the San Diego Chargers. So, They're a uh, Chargers fan. Okay. I, I, <laughs> yeah. I can respect that. Philip Rivers, he's one of those underrated quarterbacks who like, he, he any other team, he'd be like a Hall of Fame player, but he's in the Chargers. So it's like, he's Philip Rivers, you know? Yeah, yeah. It, I mean, the biggest problem with the San Diego Chargers, when they got Philip Rivers, right, in that same draft where uh, Ben Roethlisberger and of course, Eli. the dreaded Eli Manning was also drafted. And if you look at the team's first draft picks, this uh, the seasons after that, it's offensive linemen, offensive linemen, yep. offensive linemen. And for the San Diego Chargers, it was linebacker, safety, wide receiver. And so it's it's no wonder that, uh, you know, you got Philip Rivers pretty much throwing out of a phone booth. And, <laughs> you know, he's doing amazing things while throwing from behind a terrible offensive line i just it, it hurts so bad because you guys almost wasted the uh the antonio gates and Lindanian tomlinson that you had there it oh. just it breaks my heart Th those two players easily you know hall of fame player Ladanian's in now this year and antonio gates i think will when he retires he'll be a five-year shoe and no no questions asked oh yeah definitely no that what was it the 2005 or the 2006 season where oh six really uh, good, yeah six where we made that really good run of it it was just it, it felt so wasted 14 and two, and then you lose to the Patriots in the divisional round, dude. Come on. Yeah. Yeah. Don't worry. I'm a Cowboys fan. We had that happen to us last year with the, or not, no, last year, two years ago, the Packers. Uh, Aaron Rodgers, he breaks my heart. Right. Yeah. Totally. <laughs> yeah. He's, <laughs> it's a lot, a lot of tragedy from these two teams. That's for sure. Oh, for sure. Especially the past, uh, what, 10 years? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So, um, I, I think I wanted to start a little bit with your, your history of how you came to the current ideology because, you term yourself a uh, recovering Republican, which is yes. <laughs> uh, which which is a, I think it's a very common path for a lot of uh, a lot of people in this day and age. Yeah, I mean, I am a recovering Republican. And I I say that not so much because I regret being a Republican, but because it was more along the lines that that was the only world I knew. So let's rewind back to when I was growing up. So I was in a very political household. My, my grandfather was the town supervisor. My dad uh, was the uh, county legislature uh, representative for my, my home district, as well as the chairman for the county board. I was ingrained in the political culture my entire life, going to you know different events where we're meeting all these local elected officials and then state officials and, and, and individuals who are running for governor and U.S. Congress and Senate. And uh, it was a culture where I just was in this environment of interacting with these uh, Republican elected officials and, and some Democratic elected officials every single week. So I kind of was in this perception of, well, this, this is the, the right answer. Like this is, it just makes sense. Cause this is what I know. Um, 
And I ended up, I, I went to college and I took a class in political science. I started taking one class actually in political science. I went into college uh, with a concentration in business. And after my first political science class, so my, my professor was a very strong and very open uh, Democrat, but he approached things in a way of being open and honest and trying to have real conversations with students to make them question their beliefs. So not just those on the right who are being, you know, attacked by liberal professors, but then that seems like to be what we experience in, in contemporary college environments. But more so, he actually made Democratic students question their beliefs. You know, it's one thing to say uh, President Obama is the best president since sliced bread. All right, so why is he the best president? What about his specific policies uh, besides being, you know, a, a black Democratic president is is what you're going to like about Barack Obama? And, um, you know, with, with, with that kind of environment where those conversations were open, they were real, and they were expected on a day-to-day basis really made me start to question my own beliefs. So then, uh, you know, 2012 comes around. I was a big proponent still of traditional GOP politics. I uh, kind of hate myself looking back now because I looked at someone like Ron Paul and I was like, ah, he's a crazy isolationist. He's one of those crazy libertarians. And, uh, you know, I was all in for Mitt Romney. And and then, you know, with the election uh, against Obama, we watched Romney get absolutely decimated. And I'm thinking, okay, well, what happened? And I, I started talking to a lot of my, my fellow students, and the, it seemed that the response was so much that Mitt Romney kind of exemplified this good old boy's Republican mindset of being against uh, social progress in terms of inclusion, uh, acceptance, and you know they, they liked what he had to offer in terms of his economic policies. Mind you, this is before the Bernie wave in 2016. So it it really came down to the social stuff. And I'm thinking, well, you know, what's the answer then for the Republicans? And I, I, in my feeble mind at the time, was like, well, we need a new age Republican. We need a Republican who's socially accepting and economically, uh, you know, responsible and fiscally responsible. And I thought, this is the answer. This this will bring people to the GOP. And then I realized that that's not the case because the GOP never was going to exemplify those those values in a in a honest manner. They were going to, they, maybe they would do it temporarily to bring people in to vote, but they would never actually harbor those ideals to have lasting growth. So around 2013, I'd say I really started to say what other options are out there? Because obviously the GOP is not going to be taking my suggestions and my ideas seriously. And I really came into uh, learning more and loving more of Senator Rand Paul. He became a figure that was not only a Republican, but seemed to echo and reflect these ideas that I was promoting. And, and with that, I was thinking, you know, th- this guy, he's a Republican, but his ideas aren't traditional Republicanism. What, what is this? And then I started looking, I said, oh, well, here's his dad, Ron Paul. And I started listening and learning more about Ron Paul. And, and it really was the exposure I had to Rand and Ron Paul that opened my eyes saying, okay, they're Republicans, but they're, they're embracing and promoting this idea of small L libertarianism. So around, I'd say 2014, 2015, when we started looking forward to the 2016 election, it was being rumored that Rand was going to run to kind of follow up the, the footsteps of his dad, which was great. And I was thinking, you know, oh my gosh, this is, this is wonderful. We're going to have this libertarian movement of really taking the government over to leave people alone. 
and I went I went in all all in for Rand Paul and uh, to to watch as the message of Rand Paul while it resonated with individual voters was sadly overshadowed by the populist wave that was Donald Trump taking over the GOP. Yeah, you know, I kind of was just a little shellacked, kind of thinking, my God, here's here's really the answer, this libertarian answer to the Republican Party, kind of what I've been talking about there for for years after the Mitt Romney devastating loss. And and we're we're losing out right now because we we aren't embracing this way of thinking, this this really I would say contemporary way of thinking of you know basically leaving people alone, not hurting people and not taking people's stuff. So with that being said, I ended up uh, you know, while I did yes support Rand Paul, uh, I knew that Rand was gonna have a really high hill to climb. And I kind of mentally prepared myself for the the reality that that Donald Trump was probably going to be the nominee. So uh when I finally came to that uh acceptance, I, I said, I can't support Donald Trump. I just can't. And I said, you know, I think the the answer is going to have to be looking at a a true alternative candidate. And with that ended up being the likes of a Gary Johnson, unfortunately, in the Libertarian Party. Now, prior to Gary Johnson, um, I was really on board with the likes of an Austin Peterson. I thought Austin Peterson uh, had the not only the skill set in terms of his ability to convey libertarian ideas to a larger audience, but the ability for Austin to build a coalition between these disaffected conservative, never Trump Republicans with the likes of a Liz Mayer or an Eric Erickson or a Glenn Beck. And um, I think the Libertarian Party really wasted a uh, wasted a golden opportunity to bring in these new alternative voices by not listening to what was happening with the likes of an Austin Peterson being out on this this public stage uh, and, and having the ability to grow this movement larger. So, I mean, with all that being said, I really got into supporting not only Austin and, and then eventually the libertarian candidate in Gary Johnson, but I really tried to start reaching out and trying to do things behind the scenes. So uh, that's where I began my activism working for the Libertarian Republic as an associate editor, but also being able to to try and and reach out to people on a more personal level, which eventually led to now here I am today with my show on the We Are Libertarians Network. You know, I've, I've been on uh, the We Are Libertarians Network show before, actually a couple of times, guest hosting. So that's where I think my my real niche has been, is trying to not only help the libertarian, not so much the party, but the libertarian movement, that small L libertarian movement, and to create an opportunity for the libertarian messaging to reach beyond the uh, the confines of the LP National and uh, the libertarian Facebook groups we see, and to actually reach audiences you know far and wide across the United States that we normally wouldn't reach with a close, I don't say closed-minded, but a an, a marketing and messaging that the root and the principles of the marketing and messaging, while in, are are inclusive, they don't come across as inclusive. So it's going to be really a twofold effort trying to to work to promote this marketing and messaging to a larger audience that is, I would say they're agnostic to the true values that are within that of small L libertarianism. Yeah. And it's really interesting that you bring up the uh, term agnostic uh, when talking about this, because it really feels like what is happening with or what happens with people in general is that they just have this tendency to think that the first ideology or belief that they have is the right one. And so what the Libertarian Party is really trying to do is either prove them wrong or incorporate their own beliefs 
or the beliefs that they already have into the libertarian ideology. And to me, I feel like it's almost we're not trying to educate, even though that is is what you're trying to do, educate and enlighten. But we're almost trying to awaken this feeling that people already have this want of freedom, this want of liberty, this want of, you know, uh, self personal autonomy. Oh, absolutely. Because I mean, I, and if I may, I mean, I think it comes down to, and I'll say, I'll use two phenomenal examples in, in marketers and libertarian movement is Matt Gibby and, uh, and Jason Stapleton. And one of the fundamental principles that both of them have promoted, and I think have been very successful in bringing people into the movement is starting out with a concept of don't hurt people and don't take people's snuff. And I think universally, we as human beings can acknowledge, empathize, and agree that that's a good starting off point to build a society. And and we can dig into the areas in which not hurting people and not taking their stuff goes into. But until we're able to start off with that premise and reach people on that fundamental basis, we're just going to be spinning our wheels because we need to we need to help people realize that that's kind of at their core, likely their own personal beliefs. And then we can show them how that does relate to libertarianism and, and the moral and ethical I guess the way you could rationalize your ideas based on, again, those very basic fundamental principles of not hurting people and not taking their stuff. Yeah, I totally agree. That's at the core. It's what libertarianism is about is about not harming people, right? It's the no or the non-aggression principle, the no harm principle, whatever uh, you tend to call it is really the unifying factor. Absolutely. And I think we, so this is the thing. Libertarians, by and large, we get into, I call it libertarian speak. So we say things like the non-aggression principle. We say things like the NAP. We say civil asset forfeiture. We talk about occupational licensing reform. Dude, those words mean absolutely nothing to your average everyday individual voter or even just American citizen. They hear like the non-aggression principle and they're like, the the hell is that? I, I don't get what that means. And I think that's why libertarians, we have to start being able to speak about these issues in a way that the average everyday voter can understand. They're not going to hear, you know, when they hear the non-aggression principle, they just hear white noise. When you start talking about not hurting someone else and not forcibly taking somebody else's things, that's easy for them to, to rationalize. That's easy for them to say, oh, that makes sense. I shouldn't do that. When you're talking about, let's say, for instance, occupational licensing reform. If I say occupational licensing reform to, to a Republican voter, you're going to be like, the hell is a, an occupational licensing reform? But then so let's let's explain it in a better way. Okay, if you are a, a hair cutter, should you spend a $30,000 fee to get a license to be a hair cutter? Like, does that make sense? And the obvious answer is no, but a lot of voters don't realize that that's a thing. So we have to be able to talk about these, these very real and, and sometimes very confusing topics in a very easy to understand way so people can can understand how these principles apply to not only themselves but likely those individuals within their own lives that they interact with on a daily basis and they don't realize how it, it really does have such a direct and often negative impact on their own individual lives right and that's what i really enjoy about your podcast i, I think the most latest example that i really liked was uh, your discussion of net neutrality and the the example you used there so I, I really I enjoy that your show does that and that it does it so well because it really you're right that that explaining these difficult, hard, non-aggression principle kinds of concepts kind of fall on deaf ears. 
Well, and here's the thing is that I will never sit here or on my show and claim to be an expert about everything. And I think that's one thing that libertarians tend to do, which is actually really negative to our, our actual messaging is that we approach things with this, this notion of it just makes sense. It's just logical. It's just rational. All right. That, that, that might be well and good, but we have to approach things in a manner that number one, shows that we're empathetic individuals that we we could understand when somebody comes up to us and starts talking about you know well sh- let's take the example you just gave net neutrality well is it fair that a company can can throttle or or filter content based on whether they want it to 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 be on their their network or not and they're going to come in with this mindset it shouldn't be now we shouldn't be able yeah, as libertarians, we, we shouldn't just come in and say, well, of course it is because property rights. And, and once we start talking in libertarian speak, people shut down. They they put the blinders on. They say, this guy is, is you know, on, on level 10. I'm on level two. I can't, I, I, not only can I not talk with him, I don't want to talk with him. Yeah. And they shut, they shut off. So it's important for us to say, well, let's say, you know, you own a, a small road that goes to your house. And at your house, you're selling maple syrup. I don't know. I'm from the upstate New York area. So for me, maple syrup is something that people actually sell. So you sell maple syrup on your lawn. Now, just because you have this small road, does that mean that the the guy next door should be able to utilize your road? And he also sells maple syrup just because you you have that road and it should be able for him to be accessing it too? And the answer to them would be like, oh, no. So if if that's the case, then, then why is why is it that we're treating the likes of, let's say, an internet connection differently. And once you're able to start talking about these things, like I mentioned, in a way that's easy for people to, to actually take a time out and try to, to think about in a, a real life situation, I think that's when we're going to be able to have the, these aha moments. And people are like, huh, you know what? That does make sense. And and I do understand where this position is coming from. Now, with that being said, I want to make sure it's very clear. That doesn't mean people are going to jump on our side to agree with us 100%. And I think libertarians had this really, I want to say it's an issue, but it kind of is an issue where we, we come into discussions and we think either we're going to leave the conversation with them saying, yep, you're right, or no, F you, you're wrong, I hate you. And that's going to be you know the zero-sum game. That's that It's going to be one way or the other. That's not the case, though. A lot of people will come into a conversation, they'll they'll have their own preconceived notions, and then when they leave the conversation, they're probably not going to agree with you 100%. But then they're going to have a conversation with someone else. And that the, the fundamental principles and, and basis of your argument that you, you presented to them are going to creep up in the back of their mind. They're going to be like, huh, you know, maybe what he was talking about, it actually does apply to name this situation. And it's those little seeds of libertarian thought and the concepts of liberty that are going to stick with people. It's not going to be these these big issues like net neutrality or or occupational licensing reform, it's going to be the little things that we speak to and show the real life examples of how they negatively impact individuals that's going to stick with people. And then it's going to creep up on their everyday thinking. And slowly but surely, once they get bombarded, bombarded more and more with these situations of instances where our logic and our way of thinking is actually creeping into their real life, that it's going to have a difference. And that's where we're going to see people really start to, to I think, embrace um, the ideas of libertarianism, maybe not necessarily identifying with them as being libertarian, but 
I, I'm okay. I think just the, the term of being libertarian is, is just a label. And I think it's going to be more so the, the manner in which people react and actually take these ideas into their own personal lives and professional lives is going to have the most lasting value. Yeah, I I very much agree with that. And I think that's something that libertarians as as an individual, as a person, and then the libertarian movement as a whole is kind of missing is that our strategy really should be to incorporate their ideas and beliefs that they already have into libertarianism and show them how that at the root of it, they actually are libertarian. And you don't have to change anything necessarily, except understand that you're libertarian and understand that you don't necessarily need the government or some other authority to accomplish these kinds of things and it's it's very much like the democratic party's uh coalition strategy that they're kind of incorporating now but instead of being based on race like you see with the black caucus the hispanic caucus the asian american caucus it would be along ideological lines or belief lines right absolutely and that's one thing i think libertarians we get caught into uh, a couple times is that we will sit on the sideline and we'll start screeching you know, stop identity politics. Identity politics are poison. And then all of a sudden, when people start talking about libertarian stuff on a more like individual basis, libertarians embrace identity politics. <laughs> and it's it's uh, really, it's a double-edged sword in terms of our messaging. So, you know, when we get into, let's say libertarian, uh, now this is going to be the, the, the I, I, I think it's gross, just like these, these breakdowns between, well, I'm an ANCAP and I'm a minarchist and I'm a classical liberal. It's like, Stop with the labels. Just be a person who advocates liberty. You don't have to to you know say, well, if you're not an ANCAP, you're not a real libertarian. I hate that too, by the way. Oh, I hate gosh. when people are like, you're not a real libertarian. It's like, no, it doesn't matter if I'm not a real libertarian in your eyes because here's the fundamental basis of reality for all libertarians is while we think and we actually do have some data that backs up that we are a majority of American in terms uh, in terms of their actual way of thinking, we are a vast minority in the open expression and identification or self-identification of individuals in terms of political philosophy. So there's a very big disconnect. I think the, the poll I saw was like 63% of all Americans, they identify uh, as libertarians, but without using the libertarian name. So really it does come down to being economically and fiscally responsible and socially accepting and understanding. And empathetic. But as soon as you say, hey, did you know that's libertarian? They go, well, no, I'm not libertarian. I'm not that. And we have to take a hard look back and say, well, why is it that people have such an aversion to the libertarian name and the libertarian brand? A lot of it, and and I, I'm sorry if there's listeners here who are a big fan of his, but a lot of it is the likes of what we're seeing coming from LP National with the likes of the vice chair, Arvin oh. Vora. Oh, when you God. start going out of your, I know, right? You go out of your way and you start making these ridiculous analogies comparing teachers to rapists or soldiers to murderers. You tweet, uh, L, at least you tried on Veterans Day in reference to soldiers who died. I mean, what the hell are you thinking? Do you think that your, your you know, the, the shock factor in your, in, in, well, in his examples are actually going to bring people into our movement? And the answer is, of course not. And I think if we are going to want to see this movement move forward in a real tangible manner, it can't be through the likes of someone like an Arvind Vora, which is why I was irate at LP National for not uh, centering him and taking him out of his leadership role, because what he is doing is doing more harm to the libertarian brand than Gary Johnson on national TV saying, what is Aleppo? 
you know, Gary, yeah, he came across as, you know, just this kind of goofy dude. And, and Gary, from all accounts I've, I've come to, uh, to realization with is that he's a nice guy. He's a very down to earth person and that's great. But like, if we, if we want to actually have people start to embrace libertarian ideals, it's not going to be through, through this shock factor. It's going to be having real conversations with real people and making them understand through, not through force, just through conversation, making them understand in, in their own mind where we're coming from and how these libertarian ideals impact them and their friends and family on a daily basis. Yeah, and I think we could really take a lesson from improv classes of the idea of yes anding. and And this is at the LP national level and at the individual level of that when we have these kinds of conversations where we're trying to convince people of libertarian ideals is to say, yes, and yes, your ideal ideology is right. And have you thought about this or, and do you think it's the government can do it or things like that? Absolutely. No, I agree a hundred percent. And that's kind of a question I want to, I want to ask you is uh, what do you think is the biggest thing an individual can do to help promote libertarianism? Because Having these conversations is great and doing it the right way, you know, maybe yes anding or kind of incorporating the other person's beliefs into it. But what do you think is another big thing that uh, just will help people have not just help people not have this stigma around being a libertarian or having libertarian ideals? So I think it, it comes first and foremost of trying to talk to people in your personal life that aren't libertarian and to help break the stigma of what a libertarian is. So for example, on my show, one of my really good friends from college, Paul Riley, he he joined on and we had a very, I'd say, respectful but intense conversation about, it was at that time right after the Parkland shooting and we talked about gun control. And, and you know, we, we after the fact, Paul is very appreciative of the conversation and, and then he actually reached out to me and I think we're going to try to turn this into a show on my, on my, my uh, network, but he actually reached out to me and he's like, listen, I get you're a libertarian and I kind of, I kind of am getting what this libertarian thing is, but like, can you, I guess, explain to me, Brian, what's the ideal world of a libertarian to live in and how do these libertarian stances help us work towards that world? Like teach me personally what it is that you're, you're promoting and, and this idea of not hurting people and not taking people's stuff. And I was able to reach out to him. I, I sent him a very, you know, intense, long, thorough email, just, you know, trying to give him a very fundamental basis of like who we are. No, we're not individuals who hate the poor. We don't think that we should have no military. We 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 do care for our, our common man. We don't want companies to be able to go out of their way and take advantage with no recourse of individuals. But the answer isn't government, and that's the thing. We have to explain that there are there are actual fundamental uh, institutions within libertarian thought that help rectify these, these problem areas that a lot of people look at saying, well, only the government can fix this. And uh, you know, as libertarians, we, we acknowledge that that's fundamentally incorrect. But you're not going to be able to, to change somebody's mind by just saying, nope, you're wrong. You have to say, well, here's, here's a different way of thinking. And I think if we're able to have those conversations with people that we we are more personal with, then we can help start again planting those seeds. You know, you you don't grow a forest by planting one tree. You start a forest by planting. Well, you do start planting by planting one tree, but you plant one tree 
which will then start to plant more seeds as it grows into more trees. And then suddenly after 10, 15, 20 years, you start to have a forest. That's the way we have to approach messaging. We can't, um, we can't say we're going to just going to change it overnight like that. It doesn't happen that way. And the best way for us is to start educating our our, our personal relationships, those in our personal relationships in terms of this is what I believe, here's why I believe it, and help them understand where we're coming from. So then when they have a conversation with someone and they say, oh, geez, do you see what uh, Brian posted on Facebook? He's a weird libertarian. And he's going to be like, actually, you know, he's not. A, I mean, I don't agree with him 100%, but here's where he's coming from. And then those conversations start happening. And then all of a sudden it's it's just this, you know, this kind of chain of events where the stigmas, is it's actually approached in a way that we're having meaningful recourse after the fact. So I think to answer your question succinctly, it'd be have conversations with real people in your real life, show them that you're empathetic, show them that you understand the the concerns they have, but then try to help them understand in a very polite and, and understanding empathetic manner that libertarianism can actually help solve those issues through the use of of not hurting people and not taking their stuff. Yeah, and I think that's that's an amazing idea for a for a, a podcast or a content or whatever it's going to turn into. I think that's I think that's a great idea. And I think a big thing that we have to do as libertarians is break down this left right thought dichotomy that if you're libertarian, you're just some kind of right leaning conservative that's a little bit weirder and convince people that there's actually left and right in libertarianism. And that libertarianism is just against authoritarianism and against authority. Absolutely, because, I, I mean, that's there's a reason why a majority, an actual majority of Americans didn't vote in 2016 for Clinton or for Donald Trump. It's because they hate the system that we're in. They don't like it as, as much as we don't like it. So there, there was a big need in 2016 for a true alternative, but in order to present a true alternative, we have to be willing to essentially appear vulnerable in trying to have these really tough to have conversations to then make people understand like, okay, they're not the guys that are in Facebook groups, just screeching at each other that you're not libertarian enough. We have to be able to reach out to people that don't agree with us with the goal of trying, as Jason Stapleton puts it, to win uh, win converts, not win arguments. That has to be our goal in order to actually see a growth in the libertarian movement across the United States. Yeah, and circling back to uh, what we had said before is that it's it is about winning converts. It's not about uh, re-educating people necessarily and retraining them into being libertarians. It's more about showing them that these beliefs and ideals that they already have are libertarian ideals, and the the amount of charity they give or whether they believe in the Christian God or the Muslim God or whoever is kind of side stuff to the libertarian ideology that you can still be a libertarian and be who you already are. And, and one thing that I think it's important for libertarians is to understand if you're trying to, to, as I said earlier, win a convert, it's not going to be by saying, well, here's what Murray Rothbard said. And here's what Milton Friedman said, because that, that means nothing to people outside of the libertarian movement. That has no weight whatsoever in terms of them actually looking at what you're saying and thinking like, okay, is there an alternative? So if I may, I'm actually, I want to to read that email that I sent to my friend to kind of give you an idea and to maybe give like a template of how 
to approach someone who is maybe not necessarily libertarian curious, but they're willing to listen. So I'll just kind of go through. So my, my friend, as I had mentioned, he had asked the question, you know, what kind of world do libertarians want to live in and how do the political stances help us work towards that world? So I said, so as you know, I'm a libertarian. The basic foundational principles of libertarianism is the following. Don't hurt people. Don't take their stuff. So what does that mean in terms of how I want to see the world? Well, the best frame it, ideal world would look like that of a voluntary society. One of the tenets of libertarianism is that, the, uh, that of the individual, meaning you as the world's tiniest minority being a single person should have your rights protected regardless of your ability to defend or enforce those rights on your own. So with that, libertarians believe in a strong support of personal property rights, meaning the fruits of your labor, be it physical product or the pay you receive from the said product, is yours and yours alone. Your home, your personal affects, and your own being are yours and should be respected. This goes into the idea of the non-aggression principle, which is called the NAP, which is an ethical stance that asserts that aggression is inherently wrong. But in contrast to pacifism, the non-aggression principle does not forbid forceful defense. So with all that being on the table, right, let's go back to the original point, not hurting people, not taking their stuff. I think that a majority of Americans will unequivocally agree to the basic concepts of not hurting people and not taking their stuff by force. But when we look at the manner in which government interacts with its population by and large, those basic principles are violated on a daily basis at behest of an overarching government through the use of force. So for instance, taxation at its very basic level is indeed theft, which is where libertarians get the taxation is theft slogan. Now, I know this sounds weird because after all, taxation is the price we pay to live in a civilized society, right? Well, let's look at the taxation in a moral perspective. Is there anything inherently moral in regards to forcibly taking someone's property or income so long as it's used for the quote unquote greater good? So for example, you, me, and one of our friends in a room together where you have a million dollars and me and my friend have nothing, is it then moral for us to beat you up and then distribute your, your million dollars equally between the three of us? And the answer, of course, is no. There is nothing moral in us using force against you to redistribute your wealth as we see fit. Now, there's nothing that is preventing you from voluntarily distributing your millions of dollars between the three of us. But that in itself is the entire point. You voluntarily made that decision. Libertarians are often portrayed as greedy, heartless jerks by those in contemporary politics. We don't care about the poor. We hate the environment. And of course, we hate the government, right? But the truth is quite literally to the contrary. Instead of using government and its associated means of coercion, that government implores to legislate its perceived idea of morality, libertarians by and large embrace the idea of voluntary interactions, be it in the form of giving money to charities, entering into mutually agreed contracts, and the likes. So libertarians, we don't look at government as an arbiter of morality, but rather as an inefficient means of attempted societal planning through the use and fear of force. So going back to the very basic part of the question, what's the response? What kind of world do I want to see? It, yes, it would be ideally a voluntary society, but we have to acknowledge that libertarians often can be naive and we have to acknowledge that we have to be pragmatic. So when it comes to the basics like roads, public services, so fire, police, sewer, etc., there's a reality that there is an in inherent inefficiency in looking to the private sector entirely to fill those needs. Now, really quick, aside from this, a quick peek behind the curtain for my show, 
Uh, I'm actually having an economist come on my show in the next few months uh, who he himself has developed, tested, and is finalizing a paper on the economic theory uh, that shows that there is actually a, a an economic response to finding a perfect sweet spot for where uh, private sector and public sector, they need to work with each other in order to create an economically efficient model. So just know that that actually does exist and I'm going to be having the economists on my show. So going back to my response there. So the pragmatic reality, while we understand that those goods and services are best addressed via public sector, we do not believe that those within the community should be forced to support those services financially. So rather in the event they need said services, they would need to find an alternative means as they have not contributed to funding the services. And the same outcome would happen in the private sector. So it's only rational that the same would occur in the public sector. And what about the poor? So they likely wouldn't be able to pay for those services. So so they would have to go without in case they are in need, right? Well, not necessarily. See, in a voluntary society, the community, which ideally would be that in your local community, would be able to determine how the public services respond to the needs of those less fortunate. And the event that the public sector fails in addressing those needs, that's where the private sector has a moral responsibility to help fill the void. So I understand, and I conclude saying, this is a great deal of information. And the reality is, though, it is very basic, and there is a lot of missing out. At the end of the day, really, it all comes back to this notion of not hurting people, not taking people's stuff. And it creates a society that is fundamentally based on those basic principles. Now, that right there, that whole soliloquy I just did, that right there was my response to the question of what it is to be a libertarian. I didn't dig into, well, as Murray Rothbard said in, you know, here's in chapter five, you know, verse six, as the libertarians look at him as a religious (laughs) figure almost – you know, that's not that's going to fall on deaf ears. But when we're able to have a conversation, we're able to explain this stuff in easy to digest terms. I think that is going to be the way we we change the minds of people and we help them understand we're not these heartless jerks who want to see the government uh, abolished and the poor go hungry. And, you know, the the roads, you know, my roads like, you know, it, it's it, that's not who we are. And we have to help get rid of this this perceived notion and really start to talk to people again i keep on going back to this point talk to them on a fundamental human basis be empathetic and it it will it will solve and accomplish so much more than going to your facebook group and and arguing who's more libertarian and who shouldn't and should not or who should and should not be a libertarian right yeah totally othering is not the way to go and and i think at the core of any libertarian strategy uh when you're and actually this is just marketing in general, is to break it down to their core feeling and then discuss how that feeling can be solved with libertarianism and with, you know, free markets and with, uh, you know, non-authoritarian solutions. And I think another thing to add on to that is that libertarians are a lot about not hurting, but another thing that's not discussed a lot is that we also have a belief that people are willing to give without needing to be forced. And I think that's another thing that a lot of libertarians could, a way they could help uh, the the movement is by showing that not only are they willing to not hurt people, but also willing to help people and, and, and help people under the, under the banner of libertarianism. And lead by example. I yes. mean, if you, if you have the means, then start a charity, start a GoFundMe. Like, Go out of your way to lead by example. Put your money where your mouth is. It's one thing, and this is one thing I think libertarians in general have a big problem with, is that we argue like, oh, you know, 
the government can't solve these things. Only the community can when they do so in a voluntary way by, you know, helping one another and then going into helping their, you know, with charity and the likes. And then what do libertarians do? They sit at home and they lock their doors and they, they don't by and large like to talk to people in real life. They'll go on the internet and, and tell everybody why they're wrong and where the, the right answer is. And then when it comes to real life, they do nothing. So like we have to show our communities, lead by example, and, and really show our, you know, we're putting our principles into action in real life, not in, in Facebook groups and not on Twitter, not on, you name the new social media website that's going to be competing with Facebook. We actually have to show people in a real, effective, and, and transparent manner, our principles going into action and actually having real life tangible outcomes to help our local communities. That will be huge, huge in terms of libertarians actually reaching out to your average everyday, you know, uh, Joe Schmo citizen, you know, citizen X. Yeah, I think a real core issue with a lot of the libertarians, like you said, that are just sitting behind the computers and kind of talking and discussing and maybe not doing as stuff uh, as much is that they have to go beyond the economic concepts of monetary gains and start understanding that you do gain utility and you do gain revenue, I guess you would call it, uh, from doing these quote unquote selfless acts, from helping your community, from, you know, living in a society instead of as this individual person that that even if you're not seeing actual money come in from these actions, they still have the they still have the potential to have utility and gain. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I kind of I, I try to touch on this in my, my episodes is like there might not be that immediate instant gratification, because I mean, one thing that not only libertarians, but as a society, we've gotten into this instant gratification society where we expect to have an immediate return on investment. And that's just not that's not how the real world works. Like that's not that's not the way it, it kind of goes back to the actual the the idea I was promoting earlier is like, you're not going to be able to have a one conversation with someone present the most logically sound, rational argument for libertarianism and have them become a libertarian instantly. That's not how it works. It takes time. So one of my really close college friends messaged me, I would say about two or three months ago and they, they left college. So they graduated in 2012. I graduated in 2014. And um, when they left, they were, I dare say, I don't want to say a raging liberal, but they were, they were very progressive and, and they messaged me and they're like, Hey, you know, I, I started my own business. I own a coffee shop now. And I started to realize like, wow, like this, the, these progressive policies that I thought were great ended up like really making it hard for me to even, you know, function as a business owner. And then I, and they're like, well, I started to like, look at, well, if I might be wrong in my economic stuff, well, maybe I'm, I've been wrong in how I've been promoting progressive social values through the use of government. And they were actually talking about how they saw that hit piece that came out on Friday against Jordan Peterson from the New York times. And they're like, that was, that was like completely, not only was it unethical, but it was just flat out wrong. Like they were, they were misconstruing everything he was saying to fit a narrative. And they're like, I used to be like that. And they they were shocked that here we are, you know, removed four or five years from when they were diehard progressives to now they're, I would dare say, libertarian curious to 
maybe actually starting to embrace some libertarian values. And I mean, that's the thing. It, we have the libertarians have to start looking at playing the long game. We can't go into these these interactions thinking we're going to have an instant re- response and people becoming libertarian. It's going to take time, and it's going to take a, a constant approach from our end to be empathetic and to reach out to them and to to nudge them ever slowly but surely towards libertarian ideas. But if we start saying you got to be a libertarian, it just makes sense. They're going to shut off. They're not going to listen. And they're going to put the walls up. They're going to go into their own echo chambers. And they're going to completely shut out the notion of being a libertarian at any point in time in the future. And that's what we have to address as a libertarian community is that it it really is. It has to be the long game. We have to, to not look for the instant touchdown. We got to look for the fourth quarter where we can kick that game-winning field goal. That's what we have to be at. Right, yeah. And this whole example and kind of this whole discussion has really reminded me of a quote. I forget who it's from, but it's – uh. Great societies are made when old men plant trees they may never see bear fruit. And I think that's a lot of what uh, what uh, libertarians need to remember is that they're planting these seeds of thought. And, and like we've been discussing with trees, these seeds of thought in people's heads and these seeds of progress in little areas and local areas, in their own communities, in their own families, in their you know general immediate societies. I mean, I had so I had a uh, William F. Buckley O'Reilly. He's the uh, chairman pro tem of the Federalist Party of America, and that kind of is like the entire premise of their party is federalism to to get to get government as local as possible. Um, to to kind of get away from this notion that the federal government is the answer one hundred percent all the time, and to really start pushing uh, pushing things down the level of government from state from federal to state, and then from state to local. I mean, it's sad that people don't realize this, but like your vote for your school board uh, members has infinitely more impact on your daily life than your vote for president, for Donald Trump or Hillary Clinton or Gary Johnson or Jill Stein or et cetera, et cetera. Your vote for for you know your next door neighbor for school board or for county legislature is vastly more important important. Think of the, the, the impact it has on property tax, the impact it has on sales tax, the impact it has on your local um, federal municipality spending. I mean, it, it is so important that people realize this, but they don't because it's not sexy. It's not the the thing that's in the headlines every single day talking about Donald Trump and, and Stormy Daniels and, and Donald Trump talking about getting rid of, rid of Obamacare and the Mueller investigation. It's not about your your U.S. Senate race there in your your home area. It it it's not it's not something that people look at and they're like, yeah, I want to get involved in that in that various form of local politics. But that really is where libertarians are going to have the most uh, success, I think. And really, they're going to be able to show the most tangible. Um, if we're talking about like the instant gratification, that's where you're going to be able to see a much more uh, rapid instant gratification because there's very real instant outcomes from addressing these more local you know, be it local taxes or local spending um, on the your your average individual citizen and member of your community, rather than looking at, you know, the, the federal government and their 20 plus trillion dollars in debt. Right. Yeah. And I think I think in this day and age of, you know, the Internet and easy communications, there's really no excuse for not being informed on your local going goings ons. And I think that's something that maybe libertarians as, as an individual or as, you know, small groups could start doing is that is, is making sure this information is spread throughout their local communities or make sure that making sure that this information is at least monitored, if not promoted as something important to the community. So there's one thing um, 
again, lead by example. If you if you are a fan of the We Are Libertarians network, Jeremiah Morrill has a a show. It's called The Boss Hog of Liberty, and for his home area, Newcastle, Indiana, literally, this is what his show focuses on. It focuses on bringing in people within their their uh, local community and talking about the issues that impact the, the local community. And and I don't know the specifics, but I do know that there was an election that happened. I think it was I think it's just recent, actually, where the outcome of the election was a direct result of the promoting of policy and principles from his show. So and it has a real impact on their their local community. So I think, again, libertarians, we have to act and lead by example. We can't we can't sit there online and say this is how the world should be and then do nothing. We have to actually take the reins and help form the world to look the way we we want it to look, number one. But then we have to to go out of our way and help maintain that world in the way that we see fit going forward. Yeah, and I think that's good marching orders. And I think that might be a good place to kind of uh, end end this conversation is with uh, with these good marching orders. Uh, so, uh, Brian Nichols, uh, how can we get to your content and how can we reach you? Yeah, so you can find me a couple of ways. First and foremost, feel free to, uh, to find me on Twitter. That's where I spend most of my time uh, with my, my political uh, outreach. You can follow me on Twitter at B Nichols Liberty. But also feel free to shoot over on Facebook at B Nichols Liberty. And then uh, for the actual Brian Nichols show, you can find me on Fireside. It's the Brian Nichols show. Uh, also available on iTunes. If you're a fan, please subscribe, share the show, uh, write a review for us. Tell me where I go right, where I go wrong. That's how I get better. And then also uh, if, if they end up, you know, you, you listen to the show, you enjoy the content, please go to Patreon at B Nichols Liberty. Feel free to subscribe. Uh, and also, please feel free to go ahead and if you have any uh, any show requests or any questions for the uh, the uh, the dear leader here over the Brian Nichols Show, being myself, feel free to shoot me an email. It's uh, the Brian Nichols Show at gmail.com. Also, we are uh, starting a a fun little uh, sale here. We're doing "Don't Hurt People, Don't Take Their Stuff" bumper sticker sale. Uh, if you're interested in that, please feel free to uh, send me an email or a DM on Twitter. And we'll go ahead and get that going. But lots of uh, fun stuff coming down the pike here uh, for the for the network, um, but also in terms of the content we're going to be we're producing and uh, the, the fun stuff you can buy. Great. Awesome. Uh, Brian Nichols, you're a great man with some great ideas, a great podcast and really big feet. So I'm, I'm glad to, <laughs> that you uh, came on. Size size 15 feet. Let me tell you, funny shoes is a pain in the ass, but. <laughs> I mean, and they're so expensive. It's just, it's a nightmare, man. Oh my gosh. Yeah, I, I, I couldn't even imagine. <laughs> and, and let me just say, I'm 6'6", six, six, and uh, so I'm a, I'm a weightlifter. So I go to the gym, you know, lift things up, put things down. I weigh like 265, but a lot of it is just in muscle mass. So finding clothes that fit not only my my, my height, but then my physical stature. I mean, I have like the uh, the massive chest. So I usually have to get like a double XL or even a triple XL shirt. But then at the waist, it's like, you know, it's it's a nightgown. It's ridiculous. So just uh, let me just say, if you want to help support my, my wardrobe fund, feel free to get me get and hold me there, too. We can we can talk some details. <laughs> <laughs> Hire you a special tailor. That's for sure. Uh, it's, it, <laughs> let me just say they don't support me on my show, but Indochino. Uh, I was looking at them to get personalized suit because it is so hard to find suits that fit. So I might need to look at them. They, I heard they have a good sale going on. Check it out. Yeah, definitely. Uh, thank you guys again for listening. We'll see you guys next week. Bye.